guys, welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. Hey guys, this is Ruthie Patel. Today we are going to talk about direct oral anticoagulants. We will be going over current available direct oral anticoagulant agents, their properties, and reversal agents, perioperative management of patients who take oral anticoagulants, and review literature on managing the patients on direct oral anticoagulant for oral maxillofacial surgery. So let's get started. Let's start with a case. A six-year-old female with a non-valvular atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and congestive heart failure with a CHAT score of 4, receiving rivaroxaban 50 mg daily in the morning, requires a dental cleaning, two teeth extractions, and creatinine clearance is 35 mm per minute. Would you want to stop the rivaroxaban? All right. Well, so based on our previous episodes, we talked about how the number of patients on these agents are increasing. The direct oral anticoagulants are divided into two subgroups. There are direct thrombin inhibitors, and then there are factor 10A inhibitors. And these are based on the differences in the target factor in the coagulation cascade. So these agents have better efficacy profile shorter half-life, and fewer interactions with other drugs and food in comparison with warfarin. Exactly. Another major benefit is that these medications have a predictable pharmacodynamics and can be given in a fixed dose, as opposed to warfarin, which they need constant monitoring of the INR and constant changing of the dose of the medication. On the other hand, though, we cannot use the regular coagulation screening assays, such as PTT or PT, in order to make sure these drugs are therapeutic or not. The first direct oral anticoagulant was Depigatrin. Trade name is Pradexa. This agent was first approved for prevention of the stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation and systemic embolism. Pardexa is taken twice daily. So the other group of medications that are considered direct oral anticoagulant medications are factor 10A inhibitors. They are Zoralto, Eliquis, and Edoxaban. Yeah, and the easier way to remember them are they all end with Zaban. So Veroxaban, Apexaban, Doxaban, which helps you remember, obviously, that they're 10A inhibitors from the name. So, Reedy, can you tell us about the indications for taking direct oral anticoagulation medications? Yeah, sure. So, most of the indications are very similar to patients on warfarin or heparin. So, DOACs are indicated for prevention of stroke in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation and the treatment and prevention of DVTs. On the other hand, these medications are counterindicated in patients with renal dysfunction, left ventricular thrombus, and atrial valve implantations. So warfarin still has a broader indication than these medications, and many people are still on warfarin. So let's talk about metabolism of these drugs in contrast to warfarin. Warfarin, as we know, is metabolized in liver using oxidative metabolism, whereas most DOACs are metabolized via multiple routes and are eliminated by, via renal and fecal routes. So, so be aware when patients have renal dysfunction because these drugs may hang around longer, especially when you stop them before surgery. So for the ease of remembering, I'll say that half-life of dabigatrin 
rivaroxaban, and apixaban is around 12 hours. The main question with these new agents in the market is the management of them preoperatively. And, um, and this topic of pre-procedural management of these agents and bleeding management is the growing discussion in literature. When it comes to pre-procedural management of these agents, similar to what we mentioned in regard to warfarin and heparin, it comes down to a discussion between you as a surgeon and the primary describer of the agent in order to weigh the thromboembolytic risk to the bleeding risk. Another thing that we need to also consider is the timing that requires to interrupt these anticoagulation agents and the need for bridging. So we discussed this in our previous episodes, but repetition is beautiful. So let's go over it one more time. Dental and cutaneous procedures are generally associated with low risk of bleeding. An exception is multiple teeth extractions, which we consider high bleeding risk. In the Aristotle trial, which included patients anticoagulated with warfarin versus apixaban for atrial fibrillation, perioperative bleeding rates were approximately 1% in patients undergoing dental and other bleeding risk procedures. So quickly going back to our case from the beginning of the episode, let's try to calculate her risk of thrombotic events and bleeding. 68-year-old female with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and congestive heart failure with chest to score of 4, receiving rivaroxaban 15 mg daily in the morning, requires dental cleaning and two dental extractions. Her creatinine clearance is 35. So from the previous episode, if you guys remember, somebody has a CHAT score of 3 to 4, we need to ask the cardiologist for their input. If their CHAT score was less than 3, they most likely don't need any bridging. But in this case, we need to ask our cardiologist. But from the history of this patient, she sounds like somebody who is at the high risk of thrombotic events. Therefore, just discontinue it on your own is not a safe decision for the patient. Right. And another thing to think about is when do you want to discontinue it? So we talked about half-life of these drugs. Um, rivaroxaban being 12 hours, you probably want to consider discontinuing it the day before. Yeah, and I have I actually have gotten all sorts of recommendations from from the cardiologist. Some people want to stop Pardexa, you know, seven days prior to the procedure. And the literature in these topics are still growing. Okay, let's talk about reversal. One of the biggest fear of introduction of these agents were that there was no reversal for these agents. But in the past few years, there has been some development. We had a 76-year-old male who was on Pardexa. He came in with a penetrating injury to the neck. Despite multiple rounds of blood transfusion and attempts for local hemostatic agents, we weren't able to control the bleeding. So we had to use Pardexa band. And it's such a catchy name. It's like bandage and then Pardexa. Pardexaband. The correct way of saying it is Paxiband. And Paxiband basically used to reverse specifically Pardexa. Do you know how it works? No idea. So the generic name is Idarucizumab. Anytime a name of a drug ends with Mab, it's an antibody. So you want to just think about antibody binding to this agent and basically inactivating it. That makes sense. So what about factor 10A inhibitors, you wonder? Mm-hmm. So there is actually a reversal agent in the market for it as well. It's called Endexa. 
um, spelled as A-N-D-E-X-X-A. So think about as you want to X a 10A inhibitor, so it has two mm. Xs in it. So Endexa is the antidote for 10A inhibitors. Yeah, and of course, even in the in the in our case, in our real case, it was a difficult decision because when you reverse these agents, you automatically put this patient at a much higher risk of thrombotic events, and like a stroke and stuff. Right. So you have to weigh your risks and benefits, just like everything exactly. else with these anticoagulants. Exactly. Um, the other thing is they're also very expensive, and I don't think every yeah. hospital carries them still. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think we had it because we were trauma level one, I think. I, I could be one reason, but I don't know if we have it in all other hospitals. Um, when it comes to controlling the mild bleeding, like Ridi and I when mentioned, we're not going to reach out for these agents. We're still going to go back to our basics of mechanical compression, wound packing, using TXA agents. And we can use the, for the TXA, we can either use the mouth rinse or the peel. For the peel, the doses is five, uh, 500 milligram to one gram TID. There's a lot of algorithm that we have shared in the previous episode of when to bridge warfarin and when not based on the different landmark clinical trials. These studies are still in making when it comes to direct oral anticoagulation. Yeah, absolutely. There are still um, typical case series or case series with small sample numbers, so it's hard to draw conclusions. Uh, Post-operative bleeding in patients receiving DOEX therapy ranges anywhere from 5.5% to 40% as compared with 2% to 26% in patients who take warfarin. And that sounds like a wide range, which makes me think of there was a very big variation in the design and the study sample size. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to finish up today's episode with reviewing one of the better studies available, uh, which is a prospective observational study that included 367 patients who reviewed who received either DOEC or warfarin therapy, and they underwent tooth extraction at oral surgery department of Kyushu Medical Center in Japan. You said that Kyushu so beautifully, I would have struggled with that word for <laughs> a lot. I read that study. It's a beautiful study. Uh, it's a very interesting design and has a very good thought process. So I recommend everybody who's bored on their Sunday morning to really pick it up. The bi- their biggest assumption in this study comes from in vitro studies on dapigatran, in which they concluded the APTT prolongation declined to almost half of the maximum within six to eight hours of dosing. Yep. So in this prospective observational study, investigators decided to perform tooth extraction in patients taking rivaroxaban, apexaban, and adoxaban, and of course dabigatran more than six hours after taking medication without interruption or modification. So they basically assumed that all DOEX have similar half-lives. Interestingly enough, in order to take an extra mile of being cautious, patients who were taking DOEX were hospitalized for a few days because of limited information available about the perioperative management. And in this study, they defined postoperative bleeding as oozing or marked hemorrhage that could not be stopped by wound compression with gauze and hemostasis that required medical interventions such as hematoma removal, curatage, suturing, or splint placement. A splint placement? Have you ever done that, really? 
<laughs> Can't say I have. <laughs> uh, maybe sometimes it's palatatory. I remember reading it when I was in dental school. In the study, as a subjective measurement of bleeding risk, they used PTT as a way of monitoring dapigatrin and PT as a way of monitoring rivaroxaban, doxaban, and weekly by apaxaban. So a total of 367 patients were included, 119 of those were on DOEX, and 248 of those were on warfarin. The INR, the mean INR for patients who were on warfarin was 2.08. Overall, 390 teeth were extracted, with over 96% extractions being non-surgical. And number of postoperative bleeding in DOEX group were recorded as 4, as opposed to warfarin group had 23. So they reported that all cases of postoperative bleeding in the warfarin group were managed by local hemostatic measures such as compression with gauze, curatage, and suture without the cessation of warfarin. Okay, for all of you guys who are still listening and didn't fall asleep on the detailed description of the study, let us go over the takeaways. The main conclusion is that the interruption of do- DOAX therapy is not necessary for tooth extraction if the procedure is performed at least six hours after the last dose. Another important question to think about is what is the chance of thromboembolytic event if we discontinue the anticoagulation medication? That is where the expertise of the physician who's prescribing the medication comes into place. DOACs, on the other hand, are novel agents, and investigation about preoperative management is still very limited. A recent literature review found a wide variety of practices across the board by different practitioners, many of which are just expert opinion. Hen hen, guys, these are all great research projects for you youngsters out there. <laughs> Including yourself, Miriam. <laughs> and me, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, yeah. I'd say I routinely use local measures on patients on any form of anticoagulation as an additional measure just to help with hemostasis because you don't want to take any risk of them going home, bleeding, coming back, and you know you just end up spending more time afterwards. So don't underestimate the power of these local measures in your clinical practice. Okay, you guys, we hope you found this episode helpful. Hit us up with the things you got away from it and how we can help make it better for you. Slide to our DMs for more content and reference for, or just to chat with an OMS. Until next goodbye. time. Goodbye. Goodbye.